Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Culture is all about winning. It's all you ever hear about, winning, winning, winning. But there's actually more of losing in life than there is of winning. And we don't like to examine losing very much, and so we don't know how to do it. In fact, there's a political convention unfolding before our faces right now. And the Bernie people, part of the problem is they just don't know how to lose. They don't know how to have lost. So we're going to talk about losing today. We'll talk about it first in politics, as we should, and then also in the arts and humanities, and of course also in sports. But let's begin with politics. So I've known a lot of politicians. I've covered a lot of political campaigns. One thing that never occurred to me would be that politicians would be willing to talk about losing campaigns or even political staff would be willing to talk at length about what it's like to lose. Because usually when I talk to them after they've lost, they're lying on the floor in the fetal position. But maybe with a little time going by, they would talk about it. This, in fact, is the entire theme, the raison d'etre for a podcast called Candidate Confessional. Beyond the bluster. Behind the bunting. Past the posters. After the ads. The campaign picks up. And the motorcade moves on. What happens when the votes are counted? And democracy doesn't go your way. This is Candidate Confessional, a HuffPost podcast. And with us, Jason Cherkis. He's the, the co-host of Candidate Confessional. He's a political reporter for the Huffington Post. First of all, Jason, whence cometh this idea? How, how did you even, how did it occur to you that this would be a workable thing? Well, I knew that I had no access to anybody in powerful positions, any politicians. Any politicians that I've actually tried to interview have been very rehearsed, uh, you know, not spontaneous or warm or even enthusiastic about talking to me. And I figured, well, who could I get that might open up and might sort of reveal something that we wouldn't normally get that would show us that politics isn't so cynical, that there's actual human beings behind the politicians that run for office. That was my goal. And I thought, well, what better way to do it than to talk to people who aren't in politics anymore, who are losers, who had lost elections. And I think for the most part, Everybody generally said yes. There was only a few people that said no. And the ones that did say no, we think we're probably going to run for office again at some point, that they had their eye on another another race. Yeah, that was going to be one of my questions is who turned you down? So because I, I would expect that a, a, like I'm surprised that Newt Gingrich gave you that interview that that first of all, we, we know you probably know better than I do 
what his psychology uh, seemed to be like. It seemed pretty clear to me that he would have been interested in running as a, a vice presidential candidate with Donald Trump this time around. Were you surprised that a guy like Gingrich with an ego that big would have a conversation with you about losing? Of course. I mean, when <laughs> it took a while to get to get him, but it was surprising that he was willing to talk. I mean, I think part of it was he saw that there might have been uh, something useful about the podcast, that it was history, that it was getting people down and just having them tell their stories without, you know, a lot of sort of gotcha moments. We wanted to really just let them talk and let them tell their stories. Um, he was fascinating in part because you see this image of him, you know, whatever that may be, and he came across as sort of thoughtful, funny, pretty mm-hmm. funny. Yeah. Um, and, and sort of knowing about his role in that election in which he did lose. I mean, he... I don't think he really thought he had a chance, especially considering the the money differentials between him and Romney. He thought, uh, you know, I'm going to give it a try. I'm going to have fun at the debates. I'm really good at debates. I'm really good in front of a camera, and we'll see what happens. And I think part of it was he, he really felt like he had nothing to lose. That, that's what came across. I don't know whether it's you or your uh, co-host, uh, Sam Stein, but one of you said in that podcast that a train wreck of a campaign can also be a work of art. Does that resonate for you? It does, because I think in each case, I mean, I think take, for example, Howard Dean. I mean, one could say, oh, look, you know, his campaign was a disaster in many ways. He rose to unprecedented heights as sort of an outside candidate and then didn't really want to, I don't think he won a state, um, really sort of crashed and burned in Iowa and had that sort of scream that, infamous scream speech. Um, but in a way, that's, his campaign is still very, very influential and sort of the lessons that we drew from it sort of really played out, I think, with Bernie Sanders. Well, let's hear a little bit of you talking to Howard Dean. Here's my view on the process of running for president. It's, you know, life is full of And there's a lot of them in the political business and a lot of them in the journalism business. And so you've come feeling, you know, I had this conversation, I think Kate describes the conversation in the book with Gore in the middle of the night and when he called me in the hotel in Milwaukee. And I said, why am I a Democrat? Why do I have to deal with these people? Explain to me why I should do anything for the Democratic Party. But as I thought about it some more, I realized that you have to understand this. Politics is a substitute for war. 300 years ago, in order, the politics does two things. One is asset allocation, and the other is transition in power. We used to kill each other over transitions in power and kill each other over asset allocation. So today, even though this process is very tough and you do not see the nice side of people and people who get ahead are not all nice, but considering where we were 300 years ago, this is a huge improvement. And this is, for, this is a battle for the most powerful position on the face of the earth. You think people are going to be nice? You think they're not going to spread rumors about your wife having a divorce? They've been doing this stuff for years. Cleopatra had mean things said about her. So, I mean, I, if, if you put it in perspective, this process is a hell of a lot better than the process we used to use. Ooh, so Game of Thrones. But Jason, to your original point, you know, this is Howard Dean talking in a way that he would never talk about if he were a viable political candidate or probably if he ever thought in a year or two or four years he would be a viable political candidate. I I think I see what you were saying at the beginning, that these are people talking in a way that they can only talk from the position of uh, of toast, basically. <laughs> they're they're done. Yeah, I mean, I mean, at one point he said people like me don't don't become president. People, they don't. I don't get elected. People this angry or this sort of outside the box, they don't win. And and he talked a lot about sort of trying to make the turn towards the end of his candidacy, where to be a more mainstream candidate, to to have speeches that weren't full of venom, 
that you know sort of laid out more policy prescriptions, more sort of dry speeches, and he could not do it. And part partly because he was sort of attracted to the response of the crowds, and and he just could not figure out a way to sort of make that turn. We just did a show recently on alternative history, fictional alternative history. But I, I realized that probably for people who've come out on the other side of losing campaigns, they're constantly playing an alternative history game in their head. I mean, I'm sure Howard Dean, we all know the scream isn't what killed Howard Dean. He was already in trouble. But everybody probably plays that out. And I'm thinking in particular about the the last interview of your current season, because somebody asked me after our alternative history show, what, what would you change if you could change something? And I was thinking about things that you could change. Like it's, you know, everybody says they go kill Hitler, but that's actually pretty hard to do. But I feel like in the 2000 election, I could have gone to Florida. I could have done something, you know, and, and things would have come out differently. And so you talked to Ron Klain, who was the spear point, really, of the, the Gore initiative down there with, with the chads and the, the recount. But this must be a constant thing for all the people you talk to. What if? What if I did that a little differently? Is that something you hear or detect a lot? Yeah. I mean, with Klain, he still thinks about the recount every day. I mean, he talks about it as if it's still very fresh in his mind and and made a point of saying, I'm going to keep talking about it because I want people to know what happened. He's sort of, I think, torn because he was so young at the time and inexperienced, obviously, who has experience with recounts and made some mistakes that people sort of, you know, talk about. Bush won and and he has to live with that. And, And, you know, just reading the books that came out at the time, you can see how somebody like Ron Klain would have a lot of regrets because... You know, there were definitely mistakes made and there were definitely injustices that came out of Florida. I mean, that was was really telling with him and sort of the emotion that he brought to it. I think some people are, you know, I think Wendy Davis is a, another really good example of somebody who looks back and wistfully at her failed run for governor. She talked a lot about, you know, looking back and, and sort of how she kind of lost herself during the campaign, had said things that really didn't fit who she was, specifically around gun control, saying that, you know, she's supportive of some, you know, sort of gun right measures that she didn't really believe in, but thought I should take this position because it gets it off the table and really came to regret saying those things and sort of having to relitigate her own history, her own story over and over again, sort of justifying her life, I think took a toll on her. And I think she sort of regretted kind of the way that she sort of lost herself in that race. We're talking to Jason Cherkis, who's one of the hosts of this podcast, Candidate Confessional, which is, is loads of fun. It may sound like it wouldn't be that much Sounds fun. Like a downer. Yeah, it does sound like something that maybe wouldn't be that much fun to talk to people who've lost campaigns or staffed losing campaigns, but it really is a lot of fun the way that you guys do it. So when I've covered politics, one of the things that has struck me, and I think the exception to this, and it's somebody you've interviewed, is Anthony Weiner, because Anthony Weiner was exploding so glorious, gloriously in mid-campaign that it, was, it couldn't be ignored. But for the most part, when I deal with politicians, if they're heading into Election Day, if it's the Monday before Election Day and they're down 22 points in the polls and they've been outraised four to one, you know, they still think they're going to win. They still think they're going to win. And, <laughs> and there's this membrane that's up that somehow or there's protecting them from reality. And in some case it, cases, it even protects them after the election. We want to play a clip of you guys talking to Stuart Stevens from the Romney campaign mm-hmm. in 2012. And then when we come back, uh, I'll talk to you about this. I think pretty early in politics, you realize that the pain of losing is far greater than the joy of winning. And then when you realize that, you have to decide if you want to keep winning or keep, you know, being a political consultant in my case or a candidate in other cases. You know, I've always been pro-stress. <laughs> I, I like stress. Um, and I think stress is really important. So losing was always an impetus 
to win again. The difference between that and running for president is the stakes are a lot higher, obviously, and also probably the sense that the person that you work for won't have another chance to run for president. Whereas if you work for someone, they run for governor and they lose, you know, history is they can run for governor again, run for Senate, depending on where they are in their career. Now, do you think politicians have a unique appetite for this, as in they can stomach losses more than people in other fields? I think they're all different. I mean, I think some, curiously, are very conflict avoidant and uh, are, are not well suited for it. So I've just seen a lot of politicians who could somehow or other, they really did have this invisible membrane, like a call, a C-A-U-L, a call that they could stretch over themselves and ignore what was about to happen. I don't know. What did you learn about the psychology of all this? I think it takes really thick skin to run for office. And I think that you, you, you see it especially in the rookies, the ones that have never run before. Clay Aiken is a really good mm-hmm. example of that. And I... I urge listeners to listen to to that episode in particular. It was really moving. He was new to the process, so everything hurt. An attack out against him really stuck to him, and he still thinks about it, still hurts from that ad, and it was a kind of a perfect attack out against him. He still smarts and really sort of got emotional about the, his race and about all the things that had happened to him. I mean, I remember he was talking about Election Day, and I sort of brought it up. It, he was obsessed with campaign signs. He had to see them. He had to, wherever they went in polling places, he would see, where are my signs? You know, because that was evidence that, like, maybe he had a chance. You know, maybe, you know, that there was people out there that were validating him. He still was very emotional. His primary uh, opponent was in a situation and, and died right after the election. It was very, very close, and it could have been a recount, but the, his opponent passed away. And Aiken was still very emotional about about what had happened to his opponent and not really being able to talk to the widow. He had never spoken to her directly. He passed along his condolences through his campaign, but had never spoken to her and was really still sort of hurting from that, hurting from not being able to do that. You see that in Wendy Davis, still sort of going over what could have been. And then I still think about Jack Kingston, who on election day, still had a chance. It was really, really tight. He goes into his campaign headquarters or the where they're having their celebration. He goes into the war room and everyone's saying, you're going to win. Look at, you know, the polling looked really great for him in the early numbers. Everyone was very sort of celebratory. There were people in the room that didn't support him. And he knew, well, that's a sign that I might win because these people want to be with a winner and I'm going to be the winner. And then he said he asked his consultant to pull up some numbers for him in a different in a county, and he saw that the numbers were actually were not good, and he knew right then and there that he was actually going to lose, and and I, he just took it very well. He said he said I know numbers, I know what's going to happen. I'm not winning tonight, and he then prepared his staff for this. He told them what's going to happen, and that's what happened. Even though there were some people who were like, let's fight this, let's do this and that, he said no, it's over. So I'm going to concede. I'm going to call my opponent and concede. You know, there's but, certain, but it was very tough for him. Yeah. So you could be like that or you could be like Clay Aiken, you know, and, and be emotionally present in a way that makes the reality of this situation rather hard to bear. The other option is to become this kind of absentee landlord of your soul. And, and there we have Anthony Weiner, who does say, I think in his interview, that he's a soulless, empty vessel, that that's how he <laughs> survives, right? That this is, yeah. this is how you, you, you can lose a bunch of elections and it won't completely destroy you. You won't spend the rest of your life lying on the floor in a fetal position because you're just kind of not there. The way, I mean, for you or me, it, 
this probably would be an incredibly destructive process, but there's some of them who create this fortress, right? Yeah. No, and I think some people are just relieved after it's over. It's it's so physically <laughs> exhausting. I mean, Aiken, afterward, he said, you know, after I lost, I, I went home and I slept, and then the next day I said, let's just gay it up. You know, I'm, I couldn't really be myself, so I'm going to go see the gayest movie in the movie theaters. <laughs> and he called up his campaign manager, and he's like, let's go do that. I think for others, it's just sort of relief that it's over and that they don't have to go through with it anymore. I think Ben Knopp, we interviewed, who ran for mayor of Toledo, I think he was sort of relieved. He, I think he hated the process. And he was somebody that was running for mayor as sort of a new new figure. And um, we interviewed him because he became this YouTube sensation. He had gotten heckled in a sort of low low-key sort of neighborhood event where this guy kept heckling him over and over again. It kind of became a viral a viral video. And we interviewed him about that and sort of the fallout. And I think at that point, he said, you know, I was ready to just quit. I was just done with this. I think everybody that we interviewed hated fundraising. There's only maybe one or two candidates that were sort of mildly opposed to it or were sort of okay with it. But most people thought that that was the real grind, that they hated waking up every day and making those calls and and begging for money. They hated it. You know, we live in a culture that celebrates, obviously, winners. But this process always produces many more losers. I mean, this year already, Bernie Sanders, Martin O'Malley has been on your show, Lincoln Chafee, Jim Webb, Ted Cruz, John Kasich, Marco Rubio, Ben Carson, Jeb Bush, Rand Paul, Mike Huckabee. I can keep going. There's, There's even more of them. And not only did they lose, but to Howard Dean's point, you all of them were tortured and ridiculed and had rumors spread about them and were told directly in the case of Carly Fiorino by Donald Trump that they were ugly or short or stupid. Yeah. And and so my, my friend Bill Curry, who has been on the losing end of two gubernatorial elections here in Connecticut, always says that people go into politics to address some kind of psychic deficit in their lives. And what they don't understand is this is the worst place to do that. You know, that if you have some chasm in your soul, it, this is not where you're going to get healed. This is where you're going to get damaged. Why Why do you think pe- people knowing that there are 16 candidates and only one can win the primary season, why do you think they're so attracted to this? You know, I think part because they think deep down that they can win. Every one of these guys thought, laid out, you know, sort of a playbook, a strategy. Here's how I can win. In some cases, you had, in the case of Richard Carmona, the whole Democratic Party calling him and saying, you know, you're going to win. It's this easy. Here's this playbook. President Obama calling him, you got to run against Jeff Flake. And then, you know, once he starts running, he realizes this is a disaster. I don't know why I did this. But it's the initial sort of the, the optimism, the hope of being a change candidate or being hopeful about a certain public policy. I think some people are just called to it. And especially in the example of, say, Tom Perriello, a guy who had no business winning his district, but he, he I think, did it for noble reasons. He saw what was going on in his district. He saw um, the way different constituencies were being treated and decided to run. I mean, now when he, after he won his first election, the Republicans, you know, ran attack ads two weeks within him taking office and he lost the next election. But I think they all see it for sort of noble reasons. Maybe they think of the unemployment that's going on in their district or a factory closing or, hey, I, I can be that new voice like Michael Steele. He sort of wanted to be finally a Republican candidate sort of talking honestly and openly about race. That's what he wanted to be. He obviously didn't win. And He had some interesting regrets around that issue and all the racism he faced. But I think part of it is it's exciting. You're in a sort of bubble where all the attention's on you. You have staff directed to taking care of you and to working with you in every step of the way. 
it is kind of an emotional roller coaster. And, and I think in the beginning, you know, there's you do see a path to victory. The problem is that path gets corrupted. Jason Jurgis, it's so great to talk to you about this. It's uh, The podcast is called Kennedy Confessional. It's on iTunes and SoundCloud. Yeah. And I, mm-hmm. I wouldn't recommend binge listening. This. At least don't be alone if you're going to binge listen. I mean, have another person in the house with you because, you know, obviously you get very sad. Jason Trickus, thanks. We, there's some, oh, there's some funny bits. Oh, there is. is there? Oh, no, absolutely. I'm kidding, actually. It is, <laughs> I, I'm amazed at how funny even Gingrich, who I don't think of as a very funny person. Michael Steele, yeah. when we played the Key and Peele skit about black Republicans for him, was hilarious. <laughs> All right. So listen, Jason Trickus, uh, the podcast is fun. It's great to listen to. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. We're going to take a break. We're going to switch from politics to culture, the humanities, the rest of life, starting with an essay by our producer, Jonathan McNichol, right after this. In middle school, we had this volleyball tournament, and I organized a team of me and seven of my friends. We named the team Seven Losers and a Geek. I was not the geek. That was Eric Bell. Eric Bell, slightly later in his academic career, got a perfect score in 800 on the math on the SATs. Eric Bell was the geek. But anyway, when the principal, Mr. Luzzy, would put out tournament schedules and matchups and things during morning announcements over the PA system, he would call us just the Seven Losers. He was okay, I guess, with referring to us as a group as losers, but he wasn't okay singling out Eric Bell as the one geek. So then I pointed out that he was singling Eric out by exclusion, by calling an eight-person team the seven losers, by just not mentioning him at all. So from that point forward, Mr. Luzzy called us just the losers. Now, you want this story to end with us winning the tournament, or winning a big match, or something. You want the losers to be winners. I have no memory, though, of whether or not we ever won anything. I just remember the way one word was a point of focus and the other wasn't. It may be that being a loser is an intrinsic part of the human condition, especially in middle school. Or it may be that Mr. Luzzy just had very specific limits about what kind of mean he was willing to be. It's an interesting way to categorize people, isn't it? As losers, it's this capitalistic term, really. Half of the zero sum. Boy, what a bunch of losers, I'll tell you. You are a loser. For there to be winners, usually, there have to be losers. Sad. It's sad. Even still, though, we are drawn to these stories. Umberto Eco said that all real literature is about losers. He told NPR's Scott Simon last year that all the main characters in his novels are losers. (laughs) I'm always fascinated by losers. They are more interesting than the winners. They have a more complicated psychology. There's maybe something cathartic about it, too. Maybe we read something like Echo's Numero Zero, or we see someone performing Willie Loman in Death of a Salesman, and we think, well, at least I'm not that guy. But... And then in the world, there are more losers than winners, so <laughs> my readers can identify themselves with the characters. It makes me think of Paul Newman. And who doesn't think of gorgeous, ridiculously talented, world-class philanthropist Paul Newman when they're thinking about losers? But the thing is... He played them his whole career. And maybe it was so we could identify with him, right? In the 60s, Newman played iconic title character losers in movies like HUD and even Cool Hand Luke. 
Now, we think of Cool Hand Luke as this great hero, I know, but this is a guy who went to jail for cutting the heads off of parking meters. Well, you know how it is, small town. Not much to do in the evening. And then he never got out again. That's kind of a special kind of a loser. A beautiful loser, maybe. In the 80s, Newman was nominated for an Oscar for The Verdict for playing a lonely drunk of an attorney who loses all his cases. And in one of his last performances, in Empire Falls, he was an elderly old coot of a loser with old food stuck in his beard. I think my favorite, though, is Fast Eddie Felsen, the title role in The Hustler, a movie that's overtly about being a loser, about losing. Eddie, you're a born loser. What's that supposed to mean? First time in ten years I ever saw Minnesota Fats hooked. Really hooked. But you let him off. I told you I got drunk. Sure you got drunk. You had the best excuse in the world for losing. The trouble losing when you got a good excuse. And winning. That can be heavy on your back, too, like a monkey. You drop that low, too, when you got an excuse. All you got to do is learn to feel sorry for yourself. It's one of the best indoor sports, feeling sorry for yourself. Sport enjoyed by all. Especially the born losers. Thanks for the drink. I feel like maybe it's some backwards version of aspirational, the reverse of the American dream. Once we realize we can't all be billionaires, maybe the next best thing is that we can all go out and cut the heads off of parking meters, and that'll be fun too. All right, so we're going to continue this conversation with, about losers. That's Jonathan Mingdickle, the producer of this show, talking now here in the studio with us to winners. They're just such winners. Um, <laughs> Irene Papoulos is a lecturer at the Alan K. Smith Center for Writing and Rhetoric at Trinity College. Brian Slattery, arts editor for the New Haven Independent, a uh, producer at WNHH Radio, a novelist and a musician. They're both regular panelists on our Friday program, The Nose. And I guess, well, first of all, Brian, as we were getting ready for the show, you uh, said to Jonathan, I think that your bias was totally towards losers. Uh, yeah, culturally. definitely. Maybe it, maybe the best place to start is, with, is because we always talk about Pynchon on this show for some reason. <laughs> uh, Pynchon's protagonists are all sort of losers. Like the, like the first one uh, in V, Benny Profane is referred to as a schlemiel. I, I kind of want to argue with him that he's actually more of a schmuck than a schlemiel, but it's the same idea. You know, it's a guy who's like in over his head. And it just keeps going from there. I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a science fiction person also. And you think of like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy where the, the characters are sort of just like different grades of loserdom. You're like nobody is doing particularly well. And it's just a question of like who's doing worse than another. And it's all mined for like terrific comedy. Mm-hmm. I think the reason that they, that they appeal to me is, is a lot of loser characters strike me as having a kind of wisdom to them that that someone who just kind of wins all the time doesn't seem to get. Like there's, it's like uh, in the Umberto Eco quote that, you know, there's something very interesting about them and they, they learn a lot and they have, they have, a, they, they just, they know things that, that are worth reading about in ways that, you know, people who win, you know, they just tell you to work hard and, you know, follow your dreams or whatever and everything's going to work out for you. And that, that sort of thing seems very shallow compared to, like, what people say when they try something that fails. Although I would, I would say, that Irene, that – and I'm sure you have all kinds of things that you're willing to say, so don't, don't let me stop you with this question. But it seems to me – Brian makes me think that there are at least two categories of losers in fiction. The losers who, in fact, are living with that knowledge that they, they are losing, they have been losing, they will be losing. And then there are the ones for whom – that's kind of one last insight. You 
know, does does Anna Karenina know the whole time that she's a loser? Or actually, to go back to Jonathan's point about the American dream, well, you know, we have this whole tradition of characters like Gatsby and Citizen Kane who have put winning as a veneer over these gigantic psychic life chasms that they're living with. But ultimately, they can't win because they haven't even been honest with themselves about how lost and losing they are. Yeah, there's two. There's so many different categories of losers. Uh, so in my mind, there's all these losers. <laughs> a taxonomy. Categories, right, a taxonomy. <laughs> and then there's also the difference between the person who's the character or the character and the person looking at it, like what it means about us to perceive or take in the experience of, of losers. And that means something about our own lives as spectators to the losers. And then there's an analysis of the losers themselves, you know. But I think, yeah, Gatsby, those characters, even for them, you know, is it the system that gets in the way? It's either the system that gets in the way or their own psychology, their fatal flaw. One of the things that strikes me is that, like Brian is saying, that there's almost this kind of Promethean secret that the loser has, right? That, yeah. that everything, I mean, everything that we're told by our culture and by commerce is that we are winners, we can be winners. But in fact, I mean, a lot of the time we do lose. And and maybe one of the jobs of fiction is to tell us that, you know, that, that many of these stories end that way. There is a great solace in saying that, well, at least losers are more interesting and complicated and at least they learn something <laughs> about the world, you know, like because and I, I often tell myself that, you know, if something doesn't work out the way I want it to. Well, I've learned something. I've become a better person. I've become a deeper, more interesting person because I've experienced loss. And we see that in character too, but maybe it's just a you know a way to soothe ourselves from the reality <laughs> that you know what you're a loser or you lost in that particular respect you know. But at the same time, I think seeing somebody who's a seeing a character who's a loser is is you know makes us feel connected to some kind of inner experience that we have that we've all you know like some kind of inner suffering that we have that you know there's nothing we can do about, but we can see somebody else do it and that makes us feel better. You know, Brian, one, it is sort of true that the commercial culture is very uncomfortable with this idea. And the, what, the example that I give is that uh, Chris Elliott was making a, um, a sitcom called Get a Life in which he played a 30-year-old paperboy living over his parents' garage. Right. Uh, and that um, I talked to some writers who were very familiar with the work on that. And the, they said the Fox TV executives would show up on the set all the time pressuring Elliot to have there be have there be some uptick at the end of every episode, <laughs> some giant life lesson that he learned or some right. way that he eked out some small victory. And then Elliot was really steadfast about this, you know, that, that – that like Homer Simpson, you know, although I think the Simpsons has gotten a little sunnier over time and a little less wedded to what what a loser Homer is. But Chris Elliott was going, no, you don't understand. This is about a 30-year-old paper boy. <laughs> right. you know? there's, there's no future for this man. <laughs> yeah, I think that's really interesting. And that's much less popular. Um, probably uh, Is that much less popular? I mean, like, that just made me think of the 40-year-old virgin. You know, you ha- it had to end with him being happy at the end. So the idea of, like, you, you struggle and you're a loser, but then you learn something and you overcome it, and then, you, then you're happy is such a m- much more common narrative yeah, arc, right. you know, than the one was like, no, he just didn't, he just then, didn't make it. But then the ones that, that do the opposite and do it well get get all kinds of attention, right? Like Breaking Bad is the story of a man who makes a bunch of horrible decisions that continually go horribly wrong. And they just get worse and worse and worse and worse as the show goes on, you know, to the point where you eventually are rooting very much against him 
and instead rooting for like the other losers around him like hoping that maybe they can escape like but, this horrible so, thing that he set up. All right. Well, so as someone who only watched it a couple of times, I yeah. don't really know. You're rooting against him because he's a loser or because Well, see the, the moment that he the moment that it's it's about it's about a guy who definitely, you know, he starts off as a kind of quintessential loser. Like he's a, he's a he's a ch- Schmuck is a great word to describe him at the very beginning of yeah, he's, the series. He's a, he's a chemistry teacher who, in fact, yeah. walked away from this incredibly lucrative startup. He's one of the guys right. who, who discovered some lightning in a bottle thing. I can't even remember what it is. Yeah. But whatever it is, his friends got rich or one of his friends got very rich, and he walked away for some reason or another. And he's a high school chemistry teacher, and he has fatal cancer. But yeah, then, so that's basically a loser. Yeah, yeah. In the, but in the, course of the, in the course of the series, he goes from – that to this kind of completely immoral leader of this sort of like really horrendous drug ring. And the, the, the sort of great thing about the show is the way that as you, as you increasingly despise the main character, they have a kind of sidekick for him who is like also very much a loser, but he becomes kind of the moral compass of the show. You know, in this, yeah. so you, it sounds like, like... He's, the, he's the thing that you keep rooting for. And part of it is that you, you want him eventually to succeed because he keeps being a loser. Right. Like, so it, the, because the, the first because guy, right. I, th- I think I know, I know who you're talking about on the show. Yeah. And so it the, was Jesse. The, He's played by yeah. 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 But the first guy, maybe it sort of like goes through, it sounds like goes through sort of a transformation from a loser to yeah. a jerk, you know, well, or something like yeah. that. I think, there, I think so. there's something Shakespearean in that model. Yeah. Yeah. Walt turns into a monster, not just a jerk. Yeah. He's, okay. into, He's he turns a into a monster. psychopath basically by the end of the show. And, and uh, you know, I don't know what Vince Gilligan was thinking about all this, but one possible thing is, maybe at some subconscious level, it's like he can't, You if you don't accept being a loser, like everybody else in the series accepts that they're going to be collateral damage to a certain degree. They're going to get damaged <laughs> yeah. by this process. He he doesn't want to be a loser, and but his only, the only thing he can think of to turn into is a monster. And there's sort of a Shakespearean punishment at the end of that. You know, your, your, your death, your demise is foretold by this choice that you've made. He probably, we would have been better off just being a loser. Well, right. So there's something <laughs> sort of humble yeah. about losers, you know, so in a way that's our category of lo- like, does losers, I mean, a monster is a, you know, you could say he's a, a person who's a monster is a loser by, by many standards, but I don't think that's the kind of loser that we're talking about. We're talking about a more, a loser who, who, whom we can identify with in some way, or maybe we could just put that on the extreme of the, <laughs> of the, uh, t- of the, you know, spectrum of losers, the monster loser. Well, I think the another thing about this is we're familiar with certain storylines, and the the, the storyline that we're the most familiar with probably is the underdog who then wins, yeah. and that's really not what we're talking about today, right? No. We're talking about <laughs> losers, but I think you know even the people who promote and package our culture, they're not that comfortable with these storylines. Yeah. Uh, I discovered, Brian, there's actually a term in the industry, as we say, called the Napoleon Dynamite Problem. And the Napoleon Dynamite Problem, which is based on this movie about real losers who, although they get have, they eke out a little bit of solace at the end of this movie, they're sort of in a permanent underclass of losers. And there's something very funny about it, very funny about the way that it's dealt with. But the, the Napoleon Dynamite Problem is that they can't, it won't work with the kind of algorithms that just help you tell, help Amazon or Netflix or somebody tell you what, what other movie you would like. <laughs> <laughs> because we don't, it just doesn't really fit in. There aren't pattern. that many of them, are there? Yeah. I mean, that, that is a pretty special case because the, the end of that movie is this like kind of weirdly redemptive moment for him, mm. right? In a way that, 
I, I think it came out of this 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 strain of things about losers, but things don't things don't work out as well for the for the sort of benign losers in the other movies. Like the, I think it's interesting to think about humor too. Mm-hmm. You know, yes, like so I was thinking about sure. at, you know they they just made a movie of absolutely fabulous. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen the movie, but the TV show Ab Fab. Mm-hmm. You know, those two women are losers. And it's just hilarious how they're losers. Well, Liz, Liz Lemon is the ultimate loser. Yeah, and, but yeah. she but she does have the Promethean knowledge on, on 30 Rock. Yes. She's the one person <laughs> who truly understands that she's locked in an insane asylum. I mean, the fact that she doesn't even really have a chance of ever being a winner, I, I think sort of gives her that information. And I know, Irene, you had some very specific thought about de- thoughts about depicting women as losers. I mean, we have that a lot in tragedy. We have Madame Bovary. We have Anna Karenina. We have Blanche Dubois, who could be, who could lose worse than Blanche. But what, what were your thoughts about Yeah, this? I mean, I was trying to make, you know, it's impossible to make sweeping cate- categorizations about gender that hold for any instance. But I think women, you know, what does it mean for a woman to be a loser in our culture? You know, it's so much of it has to do with appearance. You know, she just doesn't look right. She doesn't look appealing to people. She can't, you know, have the relationship. It's all—it's a lot in relation to other people, in relation to the world. Or she can't get anywhere. Or she's too this, or she's too that. You know, as opposed to the male loser. You know, sweeping, ridiculously sweeping generalization would say that it's about his acting in the world in some way. There's something. There's something problematic about him acting in the world. He just can't get what he wants in terms of acting, as opposed to just being. You know, and so. That's that's the you know. My Although starting you could you could find exceptions to that rule, right? You can find I mean, a million exceptions I mean, to Jake, any gender rule. But. Jake Jake Barnes is already damaged. It's not mm-hmm. you know, and and then he has to live out this kind of loser destiny. Well, our producer <laughs> Jonathan McNichol also wants us to talk about whether or not we have felt like losers. I certainly have stories. I don't know. You, is it me? You, no, you? I've never felt like a loser <laughs> in my life. <laughs> Kidding. I mean, yeah, I feel like a loser all the time. And actually, I think a lot about, you know, there's this book called Status Anxiety by this guy, Alain de Botton. And he talks about how we we perceive our own status in relation to the group that we identify with, you know, Mm -hmm. so in many ways, I might not seem like a loser, but in many ways, I feel like one. So there's that, you know, there's like the social level, like, you know, I haven't written as much as I want to write, whatever. So there's that level. But then there's also much more serious, severe senses of feeling like a loser. I mean, definitely my whole adolescence was basically me being a loser. I was like pathologically shy. Mm -hmm. And so I never spoke in class all through high school or college. And so I had a lot of experience. We moved when I was 14. And um, so I went to this high school and I was perceived as being like it was a very sort of upper middle class type high school and I thought I was a hippie and, you know, everybody thought I was really weird and everybody's called me weird and, you know, so uh, I was just like okay, pure, we're, we're getting pure suffering, picture. right? Get, yeah. Pure, pure Did you suffering. you ever find yourself playing tetherball in a dust, <laughs> dusty lot? That's on Napoleon. <laughs> How about you, Brian? I don't know. You're too cool to. Well, OK. So I think I think the easiest <laughs> way to get into that would be so the, 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 the label that people have given me you know, for the ways that I express these things is that I apparently have a raging case of imposter syndrome, <laughs> which is uh, that, you know, other people s- seem to think I know what I'm doing, but I am convinced that I have absolutely no idea what I'm doing. You know, there's that sense of like, well, eventually everyone's going to figure this out and then I'm not going to have any more work or any more friends or any more things to do. But, you know, I, I, I've, I've started to realize that I, I'm, 
as as kind of annoying as as that mentality is, I become deeply suspicious of people who don't have it. Right. They're, you know, I'm just like, what is what is wrong with you that you don't understand that you're not perfect at what you're doing? <laughs> that you, but but it is, you know, it it is something. You know, it's like I'm I'm terrible at taking compliments for that reason. People um, say good job on that, and I'm just like, there's no way, you know. Right, we're back to Umberto Echo. Winners are stupid. Uh, and- <laughs> but I think there's also, you know, it's interesting because I, I I've heard about that imposter syndrome, but I sort of feel like I've I've often had the opposite. I hate to say it, but like so the feeling of like if only people really knew me, they would recognize right. me. But I can't be recognized in the world for whatever reason, you know. So that's the, the the you know the the person who's afraid to speak, you know, but just thinking like if I could just speak, then I would be I would have a great life. But I'm just you know, and so that's why I identify with Gregor Samsa, you know, the the Kafka character in Metamorphosis. <laughs> you know, he wakes up, he's a bug. He has this whole inner life where he's thinking these things. He's listening. He listens to someone playing a violin and he just like has this, he's moved. He's like, he has all this like rich inner life, but he, no one can hear him. He tries to talk and all they hear is gibberish, you know, and they throw slops at him and they think he's disgusting. He tries to come out the door so he can listen to better to the music, but they think he's so hideous that they, you know, he, he has to cower behind the door. That's the kind of loser I can identify with, you know, but that's really different <laughs> from the imposter that loser. That was so great though, what you just said. <laughs> It is like, I, that's Irene's Match.com ad. You know. <laughs> Character I identify the most with, Gregor Samsa in Metamorphosis. One thing that I do remember, I, when Jonathan said, well, when were you a loser? Now, we all have like pretty funny stories about moments of humiliation or embarrassment, but my mind went right to this place where I had been playing college soccer on this club soccer team. It was a very competitive league, league and a competitive club, and I'd always been kind of the assistant coach. And going into my senior year, I sort of thought I was going to be – or the coach or the captain or whatever you call it. And I thought I was going to be the captain, and the, like by acclamation. And suddenly the whole team said, oh, no, we want to have a vote about this. And they elected two other people, and I was not <laughs> elected captain. Not only did, did I lose, I lost to two people and got nothing. And, and I really do remember just having this, I think more than at any other moment, this seems so stupid and trivial of all the things to remember, but I do remember feeling so colossally like I had lost, you know, like, mm. uh, like you know, just – bottom falling out from under me moment. And and I don't know why that what why it would be that one particular thing. But but it Was just, it because you expected that you were gonna get it? I think some of something? I think some of it's like that, you know. I mean I we were having this conversation in the middle of the Democratic National Convention. <laughs> Last week <laughs> Debbie Wasserman Schultz taunted the Republican chairman saying, Hey, you seem to be having a few problems. He tweeted, Hey, you seem to have be having a few problems here. Need an extra party chairman? I could come over. I'm free this week. Ha 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 ha. <laughs> you know? oh so it's maybe it is yeah. when you're riding for a fall, you know, when yeah. you're riding high. I mean, it's why it's good to have no ambitions at all. You know? <laughs> Forget <Yeah>. it. <laughs> but it's, that's, how, that's how we avoid being a loser, just keeping our expectations. Just go high. have a sandwich, you know. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I just as we're sort of wrapping up here, I mean, I guess what we realize is that tragedy is a way of educating us. I mean, the reason and, – and, and, I, and I wonder, Brian, if in fact one of the things that's happening as everything gets focus grouped – you know, all the culture that's presented to it is focus group and the focus groups. Oh, no, I can't stand reshoot the ending because I can't stand to see him lose. You know, mm. and that we've become a James Bond culture instead of a Le Carre culture. You know, in, in Le Carre, <laughs> people really get screwed. They are. I mean, the spy who came in from the cold, you can't have a bigger loser than that. But but it's like all we want is James Bond. And I wonder if as a result, we're not really being educated 
about reality the way, say, audiences of Shakespeare were educated half the time anyway. You know, it's possible. I mean, I, I remember watching watching Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid in college. Mm-hmm. You know, that was that was like in the late 90s and being like pretty shocked at the ending of that movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, the last thing I would expect is what happened to those two. And it does put you in mind of realizing that, like, that movie would be very difficult to make now. Mm-hmm. You know, we got these two great stars. We got this, like, crackerjack screenwriter. And we're going to end it like this. <laughs> yeah. well, we're back to Paul yeah. Newman. But on the other hand, we have culture these days. And it's, I think it stands out as exceptional. Whether it's Game of Thrones or The Wire, there's now the, when, when anybody shows us people being chewed up by the jaws of fate. Like in The Wire, you know, all these rather engaging yes. kids who work in the project is they're just going to get killed and killed and killed and killed. You know, they're just not getting out of it. There's that scene where they're learning to play chess and they completely cannot grasp the loser status of pawns. They think pawns must come out of it much better. And yeah. in Game of Thrones, as we know, get attached to somebody and see them die. But that's that strikes people as incredibly courageous and bold these days as opposed to realistic. But I, I wonder if part of that has to do with, you know, now, now that we have all these little niche markets, we're getting more interesting stories that way that, you know, that, that hew more to like a couple people's idea instead of, you know, 200 people's ideas to how the thing should end. The algorithm. Yes. We're back to the algorithm. Yes. It's interesting because I, does it have to have some redemptive value? You know, do, does there have to be something, you know, like what are you left with? Yeah, the world sucks, you know, or, <laughs> you know, yeah, bad things happen to people. Thanks for telling me, you know. I feel like there has to be something that you can hold on to to, to to connect with. Otherwise, I don't know why. Like, I remember that movie, um, oh, it won an Oscar with the guy that was just, like, running around and killing everyone. Um, yeah, more specific. The, we can no, have, that's it's like No Country movies. for Old Men. No Country for Old Men, okay, yeah. Yeah, and it was just like, after I saw that, I just said, yeah, okay, so there's there's horrible killers in the world, yeah. you know? Was he a loser? I don't know. Everybody else was that he killed and murdered and, you know, like just to see. To Although, see, yeah. right at the, the end of the, the, that movie, Tommy Lee Jones has that conversation with the, with the other sheriff. And he talks about these, the forces that are coming, you know, that, that they really won't be able to hold the line too much more. That effectively the Ostrogoths and the Visigoths and the other barbarians, they're going to overrun the line. And to me, sitting here in 2016, you know, with a Trump ascendant, you know, political movement and I feel like, oh, you know what? Cormac McCarthy and the Coen brothers, they got it right. You know, we are being so, over. Yeah, yeah, but do, don't, don't they have an obligation to offer us something? Like, okay, so what can we do? We can just say, yeah, oh, no, doom well, is coming. I think that, I mean, this is, we we, start, we scratched at this point earlier, but I think that, like, to me, the ones that, you know, strike me as more profound end up usually being comedies. Right. You know, the ones that sort of show this, that there's this sort of dismal situation but then show that even even if people are able somehow to make light of it, like there's there's something redemptive about that. You know, that there's something redemptive about being able to laugh when your situation is awful. You know I, that. Yeah. Well, that's that, true. It's better. It's better than not laughing. Yeah. I mean, it gets at it gets at like either the we we were talking about this before the show, but sort of like your your ultimate playwright of losers is Beckett, and Beckett is hilarious. You know, and he puts his characters in these just inescapable situations. And yeah. they, what they do is they tell jokes, you know, from one, from one to the other. When I first started reading Peanuts, you know, seeing <laughs> not only is Charlie Brown a loser, most of the kids are losers. Most of the kids in one way or another are losers and victims and collateral damage, you know. And I remember thinking, oh, this is – I remember being a kid and thinking this is so much closer to reality than – 
any of the pap I've been fed, you know, about how happy childhood is. And, and I, to me, that was incredibly redemptive to discover that Charlie Brown is never going to get what he wants ever, ever. He's never going to kick the football. He's never going to get the little redheaded girl. He's never going to get any of this stuff. That was kind of liberating in a way that the, the much sunnier mass culture was not. I absolutely agree. But I think maybe that's because there's something I keep going back to like an inner life, you know, like the, the, he has an inner life and he's feeling it and we can feel it with it, him. His inner life sucks, too. <laughs> yeah, but at least he has one, you know, and we can connect with it. I mean, I agree that the, the, the pablum is really toxic. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd rather see. You know, I'd rather read Peanuts than read something that just said, and then they lived happily happily ever after. I'm not saying I want it to live happily ever after, but there's, you know, p- he has connections with other people. He has a connection with us. We feel a connection with him in some way that I think maybe is, va- you know, Snoopy <laughs> um, or Charlie Brown <laughs> that in some way is valuable. I think also we really have to wrap this up, but I feel like, you know, to Irene's to maybe push back at Irene's idea. The other thing is, I always say that there's two basic male American stories. One of them is the music man, you know, where Harold Hill shows up and he promises all this stuff that he doesn't really entirely have, but somehow or other, he kind of makes it all work out somehow, (laughs) you know? So that's sort of Bill Clinton, basically. And you you can put a lot of people into the Harold Hill (laughs) category. And then the other one is sort of Citizen Kane slash The Great Gatsby, the person who rises and rises and rises and acquires and acquires and attains, but as I said before, has address the primal psychic wound. That's not, you can't live it down. He can't live it down. And so ultimately he's done in by it. And that's like pretty much every other political yeah. <laughs> leader. But All it's, the sad ones. Yeah. Right. And, and maybe, these, maybe these loser narratives exist to remind us that that's, that's a pretty common thing. Okay, I just ground okay. well, conversation. Has, the, has the music man addressed the primal psychic gro- wound? No, yeah. see, it's a music he doesn't man. have to. He just yeah. he just kind of lives, you know. Right. And it, so it's kind of interesting. Yeah, the, the primal psychic wound was there were bells on the hill, and she never heard them <laughs> ring until now. <laughs> All right, we have to stop this conversation. It's gotten way too long, but we we also could talk for four more hours. I can tell we all have thoughts about this. Irene Papoulis mm-hmm. from uh, Trinity College, Brian Slattery from the New Haven Independent, and WNHH Radio. Thank you so much for sitting down with me. Thank you. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the sports component of this with a man who claims to have been the worst high school quarterback ever. Given everything that we've said so far on the show, you might ask yourself, who really knows more about life? Who really does have those Promethean secrets of existence? Doug Flutie or somebody who's lost a lot of football games? Who's more likely to actually have some clue as to what's going on here? Well, the answer comes from Josh Keefe. He's a freelance writer, journalist, and editor. And more saliently, more pertinently, he claims to have been, in a wonderful piece about this, the worst high school quarterback ever. So, Josh, I think we should begin with you establishing your bona fides in that regard. So, uh, in a nutshell, convince us that you're the worst high school quarterback ever. Well, I went 0-23 as the starting varsity quarterback for the John Bapps Memorial High School Crusaders in Bangor, Maine. And the team won a game the year before I got there and then started winning again after I left. And actually, they won a state championship uh, just a few years after that. So not only did we lose, but, I mean, we got destroyed. Like, we lost most games 50 and nothing, 50 to 6. I think we never actually had a lead during the entire time I was the quarterback. 
our, our closest loss was uh, 6 nothing, And we're talking about the smallest class size in Maine. So we're talking about really some of the weakest competition in terms of high school football in the country and then the smallest possible schools there. So I'm pretty confident nobody's come, you know, I've, I've said it publicly, nobody's challenged me on it, that's for sure. Well, you did talk to other people who had been part of losing programs and who had been losing quarterbacks, and one claim that you had that you could make that they couldn't was that, that in the second halves of a lot of your games, the opposition would agree to let the clock run with no stoppage of time. They would do a lot of other things that were maybe contrary to their advancement, uh, contrary to their ability to run up the score, that they just sort of let that thing go. And, and my experience in sports is very much like what you heard from other people, which is it's it's relatively rare to find anybody who's willing to do that, even if they are winning, you know, 35 to nothing. You know, I think from a high school football coach's perspective, there's always some value in, in trying, you know, even if your kind of victory is assured, you want to teach kids to try. You want to teach kids to sort of never uh, take their foot off the gas. <laughs> but that being said, they definitely did with us. I mean, they would uh, at some point, some teams would just not try to return our punts. <laughs> we would punt and just, you know, they not only wouldn't have anybody back to return them, they, they really wouldn't rush at all. And then uh, the clock would run as they went off the field and, you know, brought in, say, freshmen to play against our, you know, seniors. So, yeah, I mean, you have to be a really kind of special degree of bad to get, you know, high school football coaches to sort of feel bad for you, you know, and to show mercy that's that usually is not shown on a football field. And and so then the question becomes, you know, what valuable life lessons did you learn from this? You you basically say in the piece, you know, that, that in many respects life is really hard. Life is frequently very bleak. You'll go through periods of time where things are not good and at the end you'll die. So in some ways being you know, a, a glowing, glamorous, golden boy, high school quarterback, All-American, is a poor preparation for many of the things that will follow. Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, certainly as somebody who wasn't that, I, you know, I'd like to believe that. Uh, <laughs> but it's a good defense mechanism to have to, uh, you know, to embrace that, that philosophy. But um, but no, I, I think, um, you know, we don't ever really win, right? I mean, it's that old sort of silly cliche, like, you, you know, you, you'll never make it out of life alive. And, you know, especially when you look at, you know, the way sort of, you know, kids are raised and, and you know, I mean, I'm I'm 31. So, you know, I, I wasn't a kid that long ago. You know, we're sort of always taught we're great and, and, and we get all this positive reinforcement and it's not necessarily the best preparation for real life. So I think it, it's useful to fail a lot mm-hmm. as a kid and to understand how to cope with failure and to understand how to, you know, that failure is is sort of a, a necessary element of eventual success. I think that's a lesson that, that we don't really get much in our culture, especially for kids. So I, I think it's really valuable. You know, um, I, I say in the piece, you know, it's almost like we should maybe give kids a, a task we know they'll fail at just so they can sort of learn to, you know, the value of trying and, and the value of, of sort of the experience separate from outcome. I coached a basketball team at one point, a high school-aged basketball team that was really bad, at least at the beginning of the season. And, and quite frequently, we would be losing by – the other team would have doubled our score. So we'd be losing like 60 to 30. And one of the things I discovered was that the guys on the team learned to laugh about this a little bit. And what they would do in particular was we'd be losing 60 to 30, and they would start like going nuts over any reversal or if there was a call that didn't go our way. Everybody in the bench would be standing up yelling, waving their arms around as if this really kind of 
mattered with a minute and a half left and we're down by 30 points. And they would get me laughing. And, and I would look across the gym and their parents would be looking at me like my kid is losing 60 to 30 and the coach is laughing right now, not understanding that the kids were making me laugh. And, and that's the thing you say in the piece, too, that you can't go through this. You're either going to walk off the field and never come back or you're going to activate some humorous parts of yourself. Yeah, I mean, I, there's a certain kind of gallows humor, right? Like you just, you can't, you don't go through this kind of experience and not, if you're not able to laugh about it, it's just, it's too, it's too traumatic in a lot of ways. I mean, the thing is too, football especially, you don't, when you lose, you get beat up, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, we were smaller than the other teams. They they were bigger and stronger and faster than us. And so, you know, it's not just, you can't just sort of check out of a football game, right? Like mm-hmm. you're going to get hurt if you do that. You're going to get you know, you're going to get run over. So, you know, football adds this sort of extra layer to it that I think that a lot of sports, maybe non-contact sports, don't really have in terms of just just what the experience of losing is like. But, yeah, I mean, I think you have to have a sense of humor. I remember kind of going along what you said. I remember one time, I think we scored a touchdown to late in a game to make it, you know, I don't remember the exact score, but say, you know, 50 to 18 or something. And I remember one of our, our linemen just kind of screaming in celebration and getting up in a defender's face and yelling, um, scoreboard, scoreboard. <laughs> and I just remember the <laughs> laughing. I mean, I just started, I started losing it. And I just remember the defender looking at him just saying, yeah, yeah, scoreboard. Exactly. Like, <laughs> you had to be self-deprecating. He certainly had to find little moments of humor here and there. I mean, there was a lot of times where, you know, laughter was used as a release and, uh, you know, you don't really want to feel sad. You don't want to you know, cry about your kid. You have all these emotions going. So, yeah, I mean, you find ways to laugh for sure. Second, Josh Keefe, who's a freelance writer, journalist, editor, and a piece for Slate's Sports Nut. He claimed he was the worst high school quarterback ever. It seems to me that, therefore, we kind of lack effective narratives for talking about this a lot of the time. You're sort of the wrong age for this, but I think we're both Red Sox fans. And so I, you know, watched the whole Bill Buckner debacle. And two things happened there. One of them was, as somebody who had, had not been in, had no familiarity in my lifetime with any kind of Red Sox success, I actually, in that sixth game thought they were going to win the World Series. And I really didn't know. I felt that something was going to be taken away from me when that happened, as opposed to given to me. But but more to the more saliently, I think here, Buckner Buckner never could find a way to talk about this. You know, he was actually a really good player. He'd, he'd hit really well during, down the drive. But then this ball trickled through his legs and it became the only thing he was remembered for. And I don't think our culture gave him a way to talk about being that person because that's just not one of the stories we tell. I mean, it's interesting, too, because I, I think the Red Sox, and I could be wrong, had him come to Fenway and throw out a uh, first pitch after they won in 2004. I forget how far after. But, yeah, it's almost like you can't, you can't forgive him until we've won. You know, you can't look back at, at the loser until it's been corrected, you know. I do think that, you know, we have, we have this sort of go for, you know, we tell – you always hear from either athletes or actors or people who have made it in these, you know, kind of impossible fields, statistically impossible fields to make it that, you know, you should go for it, you should pursue your dreams because, you know, that's what I did and I, and I made it. And like we, you know, we shouldn't be listening to those people. Those mm-hmm. people are statistical anomalies. You should be going for it, but, you know, failure is okay. Failure is a part of it. You know, you, I think we need to, we need to emphasize failing big in, 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 more in our culture you know it's not really about success it's about taking big swings 
and and certainly yeah we i don't think we we give enough attention to the the losers you know but you know that's i'm i'm biased cuz i'm one of them yeah and i also think that living with your winning and and living out your victory with gallantry and grace is a relatively easy thing to do although not everybody succeeds in doing it but you know playing for the Minnesota Twins or the Cincinnati Reds right now I mean, that's like probably really hard, you know, yeah. that must be a difficult thing to do and to do it every day and to do and to play really hard and and to compete very seriously and to keep your sense of sportsmanship. I mean, keeping it together under situations like that when you're with a pretty terrible team, that must be hard. I mean, well, first of all, it's it's much easier if you're getting paid to do it. I, I suppose. Think, so. than, uh, than, um you know, I mean, I, I just from my experience, you know, in high school, yeah, it was really difficult. Like I, I mean, again, you know, difficult sort of relative to, you know, what we're talking about. Um, you know, I was I, at the end of the day, you know, I had I had a, a comfortable home and and parents that cared about me. So I mean, it wasn't like, you know, I was really suffering in any sort of cosmic sense. But it was definitely difficult. You know, I, I didn't want to go to practice. It it sucked, and it, I would you know I would get hit and. Uh, but there was sort of a sense of, well, if I quit and then they win a game, I'm going to regret it forever. <laughs> you know, it was sort of like I was locked in. It was like I can't, you know, I, which sort of ended up happening after I graduated. They immediately won a game the next year. But but if I had given up and they had won, I think I would have I would have felt terrible. About that's the it. only worse that's, that's the sort of, only scenario that's worse than the one you were living through at that moment. Yeah, exactly. And and the, the possibility of that happening was even remote, you know, scared me into continuing to pursue it, I think. Well, Josh Keefe uh, taught you valuable lessons, and the piece is great fun to read, and it's something that Slate readers have really loved a lot. So, Josh Keefe, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was fun. Every year is the same, and I feel it again. I'm a loser, no chance to win. I grew up reading this sports book. It's a sports book written for kids. It's called Three Men on Third by Gene Olson. I can't tell you how many times I read this book. It was a lot of times. I think right now I'm holding the only extant copy of the book. It was one of those things where to get my replacement copy, I had to order it from eBay that had some library overstock somewhere or something. And it's about this baseball team, this very quirky quirky baseball team called the Coogan Comets. Uh, and at the end, this baseball team, whom you've just fallen in love with all the way through the book, they lose their critical game. They lose their conference championship championship game. And there are three guys on third at the end. Somebody's uh, uh, called out. Nobody can figure out who it is who's been called out. And their captain, Dick Spicer, muses about this. And he says, after all, did it really matter which comet had been called out? Certainly somebody was out, and only one was needed to end the game. Suddenly, standing in the knee-deep ashes of defeat, with the turmoil of the celebrating Central City team washing around him, Spicer grinned. There was something entirely right about ending it this way. He felt strongly. The kooky team had lost in a kooky way. They had fulfilled their destiny. The strong, poised, balanced team, Central City, would go into the state playoffs bearing the banner of the TVCML and might march gloriously under it all the way to a state championship. The Coogan Comets, Spicer realized in a fit of satisfaction, had won their own kind of victory, a crazy offbeat victory that had little to do with baseball. You know, there aren't enough sports books like that, because I think reading that book as a kid over and over again, I realized it was okay to lose, and there could be really cool things about losing. And on that uplifting note, thanks to everybody who helped out with the show today. That includes Jonathan McNichol, who produced this show, Betsy Kaplan, who helped out with the tech part of it, all of our wonderful interns. The part of Bill Curry was played by Bill Buckner. We'll be back tomorrow. 